Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. This is hour two, which means there's an hour one. And if you missed it, we'd love for you to listen to it as a podcast. You can find it at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Just subscribe to Mornings with Carmen. One thing that you get when you go to those two places, uh, MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you subscribe to your podcast, uh, is you'll get the show notes. And that includes all the links to the people that we talk with and the things that we talk about, be they books or articles or you know, random subject matter. I, pu- I put it all in there. So there you go. Uh, it's my uh, the notes that I use when I am talking with you each and every morning. So a few headlines uh, here this morning to bring into view as we consider the day which now lies before us and how we might be people of prayer and people of peace in the midst of it. Like, how are you going to walk your faith out into the world that God so loves? And how are you going to do so in ways that honor Jesus? That's my Uh, encouragement to you today. Let's be praying for the people of California following another powerful storm. um, uh, There are now many, many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, um, not only without power, school closures, um, streets and highways uh, transformed into gushing rivers, trees down, mudslides, on and on and on. We now have evacuation orders in Montecito, California, under an evacuation order due to widespread flooding in that part of the state. So um, as I was considering this today, I thought, wow, you know, there have been so many times in the past when I know I have prayed for God to send rain to California because they've been in a in a historic period of drought. And so those are weather prayers that we have prayed. And now the rain has come. Now the rain has come. So this is a a posture of um, how do we thank God for answering a prayer in in the way that we asked, but not in the way that people really needed. And it it leads me to consider how we pray and what we pray for and um, and to remember that weather prayers aren't just W-E-A-T-H-E-R prayers, but they're weather, whether or not, whether or not it rains, bless God. Whether or not the rain, when it comes, comes in places and in ways that we appreciate, Um, praise God, honor God, glorify God, bless God, and help people. Bless God and help people. So let's be be on the forefront of efforts uh, to come alongside those who are... um, displaced today, not only in California, but in so many other places around the world because of floodwaters. I'm thinking uh, of the people of Pakistan. You'll remember we talked um, just in the past few months about historic flooding in Pakistan. It covered one-third of the country. Remember that? Well, the UN is now saying that resources related to feed the people in the uh, affected regions, um, that money is going to run out in five days. 
five days on uh, the 15th of January. So lots of concerns around the world, people displaced um, by so many catastrophic weather events. Uh, In a different kind of um, rising tide, callers are flooding the 988 mental health or suicide helpline. You'll remember that um, the federal government set up a mental health call line. You can reach it at 988, a little bit like you call 911 if you have the kind of emergency to which you need um, police or firefighters um, or medical assistance to respond to. But if you have a mental health emergency, you now call 988. More than 200 call centers across the country uh, tasked with answering calls 24-7 from people who are experiencing a mental health emergency and those contemplating um, taking their own life. And so we want to lift up people who are serving in those 988 uh, helpline call centers. I know we have some listeners who um, who work in those call centers. And so thank you so much for that ministry. It's so important. Uh, the numbers of people that, uh, or the numbers of calls that they are fielding, more than 2 million calls, text messages, and chats Uh, just in the first couple of months um, of uh, launching this 988 mental health service. And so, again, if you need, um, if you're having a mental health emergency, if someone you know is having a mental health emergency, the number that you want to call is 988. Um, The big news where you are is likely uh, deeply personal. My friend Leah's brother, Mark, is uh, probably leaving Uh, this life and going to be with the Lord full-time today. Uh, You probably have someone on your prayer list like that. So the big news where you are is likely deeply personal. Let's be sensitive today to the needs of those around us, and let's be upholding one another in prayers. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Chelsea Sabolik is going to join us next. We're going to talk about life, not just a pro-life for the pre-born, but what it really means to be robustly pro-life in life in general. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Chelsea Zabolik is joining us again today. She's the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy for Lifeline Children's Services. Chelsea, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. All right, I'm just going to throw the word out there. The word is pro-life, and I'm going to have you help us enlarge our understanding, like spread the tent pegs out much wider than we have ever thought before. Um, What does it mean to be pro-life? Well, I think, Carmen, when we look at Scripture, Scripture teaches us what it means to be pro-life. From the very beginning of Scripture, I know many of us, it's the beginning of January, we're starting with Genesis. And Genesis, the beginning of Genesis teaches us what it means to be human, what it means to be a person, what it means to be created in the image of God. So we find... um, our our humanity in the opening pages of scripture, but it does not stop there throughout the entire Bible. Really, we see um, God's care for people um, and then our call to care for other people. Um, And all of that 
all of that is rooted in being created in God's image. So what it what it means to be pro-life is is to care for um for the lives, um, the dignity and the needs of other people. And this can look you know, a lot of different ways. Um, certainly one of the most fundamental ways um, I think Christians are called to to care for life is uh, protecting the preborn. They're truly the most vulnerable among us. They don't have voices. They don't have, um, they can't speak for themselves. Um, but that it, our care doesn't stop there. It continues to the mother, to the father, to the families, to the, the orphan, to the widow, to um, to our neighbor. So it really is this overarching call to care for, um, to care for our neighbor um, and to see them um, as an image bearer and to let that um, innate dignity um, shape how we, how we engage with, with people in the world. So Chelsea, one of the things that you highlighted there was simply seeing people. Like, mm-hmm. I think that we get pretty tunnel vision. Um, we're very, very focused on our own plan, uh, our own tribe, our own family, the needs of the people closest to us, um, our own agenda, our own resolutions, right? The game plan for the year, whatever. Like, right, we're we're very, very, very focused on um, our path and making progress and a huge part of being pro-life is seeing other people, mm-hmm. like actually seeing people. Can you just talk about maybe um, how you have seen the eyes of the heart opened um, and how we how we move from being people who only are concerned for ourselves to a deep and intimate concern for everyone? Carmen, I think you're exactly right, that it is so easy for all of us to to get focused on what's right in front of us. And I, I do this far too often. Um, I just finished Andy Crouch's new book. It's called The Life We're Looking For. And I cannot recommend it enough. But in the beginning of the book, he opens up by t- telling a story. He was in an airport with a long layover and wanted to get some steps in. So he's walking around the airport and he decided that each person he passed in his mind, he would just say image bearer. So he would pass a barista and in his mind, he would just image bearer, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer, and just remind himself that the people, you know, rushing past him in the airport or rushing past us in life do bear God's image. So I think, you know, pausing to to remember that each person um, that we interact with really does truly bear God's image, that they're not just you know, a transaction at the grocery store or someone who has rubbed us the wrong way in traffic, that each person is an image bearer with a history and a story and that God, God loves them. Um, so I think that's, that's fundamental and whatever practices we can put into our lives to, to pause and to pray and to remember that, that we are interacting with people um, C.S. Lewis talks about who are either going to be in heaven or hell and that should shape how we interact with with every single person. Another step I would really um, lean into is prayerfully laying this before the Lord. Um, You know, scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. And so, you know, there there are often times where, you know, I'll drive past an accident on the highway or 
overhear someone in an argument and I can pause and pray for, for those um, situations. Um, and then praying through how God uniquely calls us to specifically get involved in the lives of other people. Mm. Um, yeah, let's talk specifics here in just a moment, um, because I think that until we um, start talking specifically about the concerns that we have, not only for individuals, but for um, people who we can identify as groups, then we can have policy conversations and we can talk about our own personal advocacy. We're talking with Chelsea Sabolik. She is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy for Lifeline Children's Services. And we're talking about what it means to be pro-life, whole whole life pro-life like what does that look like in your um in your life to be whole life pro-life you're listening to mornings with carmen i'm carmen laburge this is faith radio if you're a new listener we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift request yours today at myfaithradio.com we are We are made in the image of God, each and every one of us image bearers of the living God. What does that look like in your life? What does it look like in my life? And what does it look like to recognize that truth about every single person we encounter at every age and stage, every ability and capability, every tribe and nation and tongue? Chelsea Sabolik is here with us this morning. She is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy in Washington, D.C. for Lifeline Children's Services. She has her own incredible testimony. You should read her books and um, connect with her online. Uh, Chelsea, talk with us about um, the, the sort of making it personal. It's one thing to talk about categories and groups. It's another thing to, you know, make it personal and then talk about like, how do I know what my particular calling is in terms of pro-life advocacy? I love this question. So I will share a little bit about how this is personal for me and then how I think other people can can kind of personalize these things because um, we can read the headlines of the news every single day and see thousands and thousands of people and dozens and dozens of needs. And it can be so easy to, A, think we have to, to be involved in everything or B, get so paralyzed by all the need that we just don't do anything. Um, so like you said, I work at Lifeline Children's Services, um, and we are a holistic care ministry for women, children, and families. Uh, but this this issue of being pro-life not only stems from my, my Christian faith, uh, for the Bible tells us so, like I just uh, laid out, but I was adopted as an infant um, and grew up with uh, siblings who were adopted. And then my husband and I are in our own adoption process as well. So I care very, very deeply for vulnerable children here and abroad because of my own personal story and background. I think each one of us, even if we don't have an adoption story or we are not a refugee or we don't have this this story of um you know, being a, a very vulnerable person. Each one of us um, lives in communities with vulnerable people. And so I would I would say, get to know your own community. What are the unique needs of where you are planted? So if you live in rural Ohio, the needs are going to be different than living in urban New York City. So, so recognize the place that you're called, but also 
see see who God is bringing to your city. So there are, you know, if you care very deeply about refugees who are fleeing um, persecution, see if your city has, you know, refugee resettlement programs and get involved with, with you know, bringing groceries or, or, or whatnot. Um, but I would say get to know, get to know your own community and the needs there. I would say pray over it. God will ask God to set, to to burden your heart. Um, if if you might say, well, I care about so many needs, you know, ask God to to really make it clear how He wants to use you in this particular season of life. So, I, w- I would also say consider your season of life. Um, each one of us are in different seasons and have different capacities for what we're able to do. Um, but but again, know know your place know who God has already brought to your doorstep and then prayerfully consider how he wants you to get involved. Maybe that's advocacy. Maybe that's direct service. Maybe that is um, some some type of ministry. There are dozens of ways to get involved. So those are just a, a couple things I would keep in mind um, as you're considering how to get involved. Um, you are um, making me just recall to mind or God is bringing to mind um uh, and I'll just retell the story quickly. Um, North Avenue Presbyterian Church in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the pastor, I mean, this goes back many, many years now. So I'm, it's probably, this is a story from probably 20 years ago at this point. Um, he gets a call from one of his elders late on a Saturday night. And he's like, are you, are you watching the news? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, turn on CNN. And they turn on CNN and the live image is the corner where their church is sitting. And mm. it's a human trafficking sting, and they are arresting, you know, the people who are actively trafficking individuals right there on the corner where their church sits. And so in in view of these flashing lights and all these precious people, um, you know, is this church, is their their physical facility. And then that's when the CNN, you know, person says, federal the federal agents are telling us that more people are trafficked on this corner than any other wow. place in the United States of America. And this pastor friend of mine, he says, I was I was crushed. I I you know, I fell to my knees and I'm repenting before the Lord. And he said, obviously, I completely set aside um, what I had intended to talk about the next day. And he got into the pulpit and he said, I don't know if you saw last night, but our church sits on the corner where more people are trafficked mm-hmm. than anywhere else in the United States of America. And he says, not not on our watch, like not on our watch. And from that moment forward, then they started talking about what does it look like to be a different kind of church on that corner? Like, why why does the church corner look like a safe place to traffic people? Like, that can't be true. Like, that cannot be true anymore where we live. And so when you think about it becoming personal and it becoming real, what happened in his congregation like he found himself saying things like looking out over his very wealthy multi-generational congregation and saying, you know, like who's got an empty room? Like these people are going to need places to go. Like who's got an empty room? And there were elderly women who leaving the sanctuary that day said, no one's ever asked me to help. I have 16 empty rooms. Like, right. I have like, I have, I have an empty house. I have like, right. And it has utterly transformed their church. It has transformed their witness. It has provided opportunity for ministry in, um, it just broke it wide open, as you can imagine. And so I think that 
people often walk into these conversations with such great fear, but the reality is God is so powerful and his resources are so enormous. And in many cases, people are just waiting for somebody to ask them the question, how many empty rooms do you have? How, where is the space in your life? When you say capacity and season of life, I think, Chelsea, there's so many times we don't see our capacity and we don't see how many resources God has placed within our reach that he wants liberated um, for the effective, you know, advancing of his kingdom purposes in this generation. And I love that you highlighted this story because the local church should be the hub where all of our ministry stems from in the sense that we have the ability to number one call people to something higher that we're not we're not just calling people to good works if you know there are people who don't know christ that are doing good works we're offering a cup of cold water with the good news of the gospel and we have the support system of local churches wrapping around their communities and that should hopefully ensure longevity and care and not just being a flash, a flash in the pan of mm-hmm. we do, you know, a, a day of volunteering and, and call it good that, that we, to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson, are committed to a long obedience in the same direction. And I think that's the local church is the best place for all of our, our good works to, to stem from. Yeah. The other thing that they talk about just highlighting that is um, taking a hundred year view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take a hundred year view. Yeah. Chelsea, um, wow. Thank you so much. What a joy to talk with you. Um, we look forward to um, keeping up with you. You guys can check out what Chelsea is up to, ChelseaPattersonSabolic.com. Um, you can also connect with her at Lifeline Children's Services. Chelsea, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's take a break for Breakpoint. If I say the word atonement, what comes to mind? How do you understand the atonement? How are you, how are your sins atoned for? Who do you rely upon for atonement? One way to um, break apart the word is at one So how is my at one um, restored? Sin broke my relationship with God. How am I restored? to a relationship with God. We're going to talk about the atonement. Yes, we're going to talk about Jesus's death um, that brings atonement. We're going to talk about the metaphors that the Bible uses for the atonement. Um, And we're going to talk about maybe uh, thinking about those metaphors in new ways. Jackson Wu joins us next, The Cross in Context. Hey, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and I'm going to do my best to behave myself during this conversation with Jackson Wu, because really, I want to talk with him about Thailand and things that are going on um, globally uh, among Christians, and particularly with um, our Chinese brothers and sisters. Jackson Wu, is uh, his day job serves as the marketing manager for Frontier Ventures, worked for 15 years in East Asia, first as a church planter, and then as a professor for a seminary for Chinese pastors. But he comes to us today because he has a new book, 
Reconsidering Biblical Metaphors for the Atonement. The book is The Cross in Context. Jackson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. I'll do my best to stay focused on the book today. Um, but there are so many <laughs> things I'd love to talk with you about. Really appreciate what you're writing at pathos.com. Um, and so I want to encourage people to follow you on social media and uh, read what you're writing across so many um, important areas. Talk with us about um, the atonement. You know, my first thought when um, I consider the atonement is, you know, Jesus accomplishes that upon the cross. You want to take us there and then help us understand that in context. Yes, absolutely. What I what I found troubling over the years was that people were always arguing in, in about this debate with such ferocity. And I found it ironic that the doctrine that's supposed to bring reconciliation is one of the most divisive among people. Hmm. So that's why, that's why I wanted to, to dig in because I kept finding that People were, as the Chinese say, losing at the starting line. You know, they, they were starting from the very wrong place. And there's no wonder people were, you know, you know, dividing over it. Okay. So when you think about and you talk about um, the cross uh, being this, it is the dividing line, right? But it's not supposed to be dividing those who believe in Jesus. I mean, the cross is, you know, the ultimate point of division for all of humanity. Um but it should be a place where all Christians are unified. Like we find ourselves on equal footing at creation at the cross and in the kingdom of heaven. Um, So what is it about, you know, different maybe metaphors of the atonement that have been so divisive among Christians and then help us, um, you know, help us alleviate that division or resolve that conflict? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Good question. Uh, The analogy I give is like this, uh, Let's say that in, in the world, we only had a few dishes, fried chicken, pasta, scrambled eggs, and say chicken dumplings. Essentially, when people are talking about the atonement, it's like they're arguing over which dish is best or which dish is God's favorite food. Is it pasta? Is it fried chicken? And that's like the very, that's comparable to all the atonement theories, you know, uh, Christus Victor or, or penal substitution or whatnot. And if you if you know anything about cooking, you can just step back for a second and notice, wait a minute, all those dishes have some common ingredients. You know, if you had, you know, flour and a few other ingredients, you could make all those and an array of other options. And so when I started looking, uh, I think that's what's going on with the atonement is that theologians, systematic theologians are arguing about these dishes you know, scrambled eggs, pasta, fried chicken, whereas Old Testament and New Testament scholars are having a completely different conversation. And they're talking about the ingredients. Mm. And they're talking about uh, what are those basic fundamental components and metaphors that pervade every single uh, theory of atonement. And I think if we get to that, we can overcome a lot of division and it can help us to better contextualize and communicate the gospel across cultures. Yeah, because the uh, having this conversation in context is not just you know let's have this conversation in um, in the context of the Old Testament and then the context of the New Testament. It's also in the context of the world today and in the context of various cultures in the world today. So um, so let's roam around um, for a moment in uh, in some of these biblical metaphors. Maybe take one that you feel like we should reconsider. 
um, the way that we have historically understood it um, as you bring it into context? Well, the Bible consistently uses three metaphors, purification, payment, and load-bearing, you know, bearing a load, like to bear sin. And every theory and every place that the Bible talks about atonement, it's, it's somehow interweaving these, and these are unexplored. One of the things, for example, that I noticed that I found perplexing was uh, how people mixed metaphors. So people would say, uh, he, uh, Christ paid, uh, our punishment, you know, paid for, they paid for our sins by paying our debt. Well, there'd be this confusion of punishment and payment, but like in the biblical world, if you had a debt, then you were punished. If you paid the debt, you didn't go into punishment, but I found people kept collapsing those two saying he paid our debt by taking our punishment. And then while I get the truth of what is trying to be communicated. The wording is not the way the Bible talks about it. I'll give you a, another example that is maybe more helpful. Uh, bearing sin. Mm-hmm. Almost almost every time to bear sin means to take on some punishment for the sin, your sin, right? Well, in English translations, there's another usage of that that's completely opposite meaning, to mean forgive. And almost every time, or not almost every time, but many of the times that the Bible talks about God forgiving people in the Old Testament, it literally says he bears our sin. And it has this very saving, positive meaning, the exact opposite. And so I started wondering, how is it the exact same phrase, bear sins, in one sense connotes punishment, the other it implies saving, the very same metaphor. Well, and that's what I wanted to dig into to understand what the logic was behind atonement. Mm, so helpful. We're um, we're talking with Jackson Wu. The book is The Cross in Context. So when you think about um, the biblical metaphors for atonement, which one maybe do you turn to most readily? Do you um, do you think of being purified? Do you think of, you know, white as your sins, which were scarlet, white as driven snow? Um, do you think of payment for a debt you could not ever pay yourself? Um, do you think of the bearing of the load um, and that in the context here of forgiveness? Which metaphor, you know, is really the one that you maybe rely on, that you turn to when you talk with others about the atonement? That's uh, what we're hoping to stimulate in terms of Our conversation today will be uh, back in our conversation with Jackson Wu in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Jackson Wu, the book is The Cross in Context. The subject matter is, you know, how do we really 
um, reconcile and understand as um, as integrated one integrated thought process these biblical metaphors for atonement. So Jackson, um, talk with us about justice. What does all of this have to do with justice? Well, the intriguing thing I realized as I was writing the book is that your view of atonement is very linked to your view of justice. But what people misunderstand is that throughout history, and even in our culture, there are different aspects of justice. There's retributive justice, like, you know, the kind where you, like, you punish for wrongdoing. There's a, a restorative justice where you're trying to bring about right in the world. And in the Bible, you also see this other idea of covenant justice, where you meet your obligations in a relationship. And depending on what type of justice, aspect of justice you're emphasizing, it's going to affect what your view of the atonement. And uh, in the book, I explore how the church has emphasized different aspects of justice for the last 2,000 years. And you actually see that affect the popular views of atonement over the past 2,000 years. Can you give us an example? I think that was helpful for people to understand more about what you're, uh, what you're pointing to here. Sure. So, for example, in the Reformation, John Calvin and Martin Luther both had uh, lawyer backgrounds, and so they really emphasized this uh, punitive or retribution aspect of justice, that punishing as a penalty uh, for sin and wrongdoing. And that's when uh, penal substitutionary atonement became extremely popular. There's parts of that always been around, but it became the primary metaphor that Protestants began to use, almost to the exclusion of all other understandings and aspects of the atonement. Wow. So culture really does affect, yeah, culture really does affect your view of the atonement. And what I want to push back in in this book is to say, it doesn't have to be an either or, but it's not just enough to say, hey, we all have truth. I wanted to explore what's the biblical logic that unites all these things. All right. And what did you come up with? Well, when we get to the ingredients, purification, payment, and load-bearing, you actually see an internal logic that I'll simplify in this way. In effect, this is oversimplification, we become impure, either ritually or through sin. Therefore, we have an obligation or a debt to relieve that, to take care of that problem. And what do you do when you uh, – and that debt is a burden, you see, that you're bearing, a responsibility. So in that simple little explanation, you see purification – you know, debt and load bearing all together. And that logic you see throughout the entire Old and New Testament. Yeah. So you're, what you're doing is you are really integrating these um, biblical metaphors as opposed to saying there are these three and you have to pick one. You're saying, no, Mm -hmm. there are these three and we can understand them as an integrated whole. Absolutely. And I think our, you know, we as humans are desperate for certainty and we hate ambiguity. And so that's why we create these systematic categories. Uh, But all that does is hide biblical truth and and divide the church. So I want to cut through all that fear. Mm. All right. You, um, you have some other things that you're passionate about. So um, now that I have obediently had a conversation about the book, can we talk about other things? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So I am looking at a recent blog that you have posted here um, about how Thailand is honoring the disabled. Can you, um, I mean, can you explore that with us? Because it's really like, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, 
one of my specialties is honor and shame and how honor and shame is in the Bible and in cultures. And one of the amazing things that uh, my daughter just came back from Thailand and she was doing was working with uh, people who in wheelchairs. And one of the programs they have there, it's in partnership with Johnny and friends is uh, they will take wheelchairs and repair them and, and give them to disabled persons. Well, one of the things that we found out there is that the princess actually sponsors this and there's a label put on these wheelchairs saying in effect this is a gift from the royal family no one can take it from them and this is a gift so those who are most shamed in thai culture you know the disabled actually are honored by the royal family with this incredible gift i mean how biblical is that the overturning and reversing of honor shame dynamics yeah, it's really um, extraordinary. You guys, um, again, I'll put the link to this in today's show notes so that you can not only read um, uh, what Jackson has written about this, but you can see the pictures because um, it's really, really extraordinary. Whenever a wheelchair through this um, wheelchair project, and again, in partnership with Johnny and Friends, such a sweet, um, such a sweet friend in Christ, um, whenever a wheelchair comes into the port of Thailand, an inscription is put on it. Uh, the inscription conveys this idea. This chair is a gift from the royal princess. It cannot be bought, sold, traded, or taken away from its owner. Um, yeah, this honoring of a person who in many ways um, on most days is shamed um, is just really, it's really extraordinary. It's such an act of grace um, and I appreciated mm. the way that you, um, you know, you highlighted that component as well. Well, that's what the gospel does, right? It overturns shame with honor. So when you think about our brothers and sisters in Christ um, in China, um, you know, we, uh, we have had recent conversations about pastors in China and the house church movement, which we recognize is not really in houses anymore. Um, when you think about our Christian brothers and sisters in China, what are some of the things that just are top of mind for you? Perseverance and endurance, for sure. And they understand the church's family. As a collectivist society, they they really put the group ahead of, of themselves individually, and they love each other so well because of it. And so we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters there. Perseverance and the sense of family in the church, those are immediately come kind to of mind. Um, so for folks who, you know, are saying to themselves, oh yeah, I mean, you know, the church is the household of God. The church is, uh, you know, the church is the family of faith. I have brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're operating out of an American mindset when we say all of that. Um, we're not thinking family the way that you are using that term. So can you unpack that a little more fully for us? Yeah. I mean, I'll just give one tangible example. Uh, a friend of ours was in the in the hospital and in the hospitals they don't feed you food and anything you have to have somebody take care of you uh bring you stuff i mean it's not like the medical care here you're on your own and she was having a pre-serious surgery and the church had people at the hospital around the clock constantly providing for all her needs clothes food whatever because again the hospital there didn't take care of it so no one brought you food you didn't eat and 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 that was just extraordinary to see the constant care and attention that the hospital staff was actually amazed that they were being loved like this. And of course it leads the conversation about Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. It opens up all kinds of opportunities. Um, Jackson, what a delight to connect with you. Thank you um, so much for the conversation today. Thank you for your ongoing um, writing in these areas. You guys can follow uh, Jackson on Twitter at Jackson Wu for China. I will put all the links in the show notes uh, for today. You can read what he's writing at jacksonwu.org. Today we were talking about the cross in context, reconsidering biblical metaphors for atonement, but he's got a whole lot more going on um, and writes across a wide um, subject matter uh, area. So Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Absolutely. He also serves as the marketing manager for Frontier Ventures, so you could check that out as well. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. All right. Um, Jackson is a many layered dude. Like, I like that. Like, he's not, the, the, he is not a flat Stanley. He's got a lot going on. He's got a lot of layers. Now, so I would say, you know, he's like an onion, just like a lot of layers. But that's because I think everything good starts with an onion. Uh, you might say to yourself, you know, onions are stinky, but I think onions are fantastic and the best way to start any kind of savory dish. So, um, so if I were to describe you as an onion, it's a compliment. Like, I find that there's lots of layers there to continue peeling back and, you know, there you go. Uh, so if I describe Jackson as an onion, it's a compliment. If I described you as an onion, would you take it as a compliment? Hmm. There you go. Yeah. I like onion soup, onion pie. I'm a pretty much an onion fan. Why am I sharing this with you? Um, because I think sometimes I get talking with somebody and I'm like, there's so much here. There's so many directions we could go. Um, that's what a real relationship is like. And so thank you for uh, the time that you invest here with me unpacking, yes, the things of faith, but unpacking also the things of the world and where those two intersect. Um, Thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's the most valuable resource that you have. And so thank you. It's, um, I want to honor it. And I appreciate um, the sacrifice of all the other things you could have been doing in the time that you've been spending with me. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, for all of you who texted in ideas about what the person on Twitter might have meant, accusing me of being a fed, apparently among college students, here is the, uh, here's the lowdown. It's short for fed up. <laughs> so it's possible that the person um, on Twitter accusing me of being a fed Um, heard me say something that suggested I was fed up. I'm not fed up. I'm a person who is full of hope. Um, I see, you know, I see God before me. And so uh, he is, he is unfolding his kingdom purposes in every moment of every day, um, you know, from here to eternity. And so, yeah, I'm not fed up. Sorry if I ever sound that way. I am eternally hopeful and I am hopeful right now as well. So God is good. Let him pour forth his blessings in, into and through you today. Be a conduit of his goodness and his grace, an ambassador of his kingdom. You are his child. He loves you. Receive that today. Receive that today. Open your hands and receive the blessings that God is pouring out. It's the overflow of who he is. God is love. And so although he loves us intentionally and in very intentional ways, it also happens because it's simply the overflow of who he is. God is loving, yes, because God is love. Have a great day.
and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.